Now, just because something is easy to do doesn't mean to say that it should always be done. We've leapt into the idea that changing the color appearance and intensity of light over the course of the day will always be beneficial. My thinking on this is that many, if not most, architectural applications, we may only be creating a theatrical effect and apparent impacts become merely psychological. Frankly, there's not yet been sufficient research, particularly in real live workplaces, to see what the effect of varying color temperature and intensity are, and how applicable building them into our design process is. I am bound to say that our current metrics for light and our general design targets and methods are of absolutely no use in measuring or optimizing the melanopic effects of light. Welcome to another episode of the Virtual Lighting Design Community Podcast. In today's episode, we have a special treat for our VLDC audience. We are delighted to bring you an exclusive presentation from Kevin Shaw, one of the esteemed keynote speakers at the Guangzhou International Lighting Exhibition in China, which was held back in June 2023. Kevin Shaw is a renowned figure in the lighting industry with a remarkable list of accomplishments. He has made significant contributions to the field and continues to inspire professionals worldwide. If you want to learn more about Kevin and his journey, make sure to check out our previous interview with him or visit our online community at members.vld.community, specifically in the industry events section. Speaking of our online community, it's a treasure trove of valuable content and resources available exclusively to VLDC members. From insightful discussions to expert advice, you'll find everything you need to stay updated and connected with the lighting design community. Before we dive into Kevin's keynote presentation, we would like to express our gratitude to our premium supporters. They are Aero Light, Creative Lighting Asia, Airco, and the Signify Lighting Academy. Their support makes it possible for us to bring you top-notch content and elevate the virtual lighting design community experience. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Kevin Shaw's captivating presentation. Please welcome Kevin Shaw. Welcome. Ni hao. Thank you for coming today. Um, so, while there's been much focus, quite deservedly, on human-centric lighting, health and well-being is a topic with a far broader aspects of lighting. We need to remain mindful of how all other aspects of light can impact our well-being. Light has potent physical impacts on us that are not related to our eyes or our visual system. We're all aware of our natural requirement for daylight and sunlight to allow us to synthesize vitamin D in our skin. It's essential to maintain calcium levels and healthy bone structure. Equally, excess sun exposure can cause sunburn, which can result in skin cancers. These actions are both uh, caused by exposure to UV, ultraviolet B radiation. This can also cause corneal opacity and cataracts. Our current light sources, which are predominantly blue-pumped uh, phosphor-converted LEDs, do not emit any ultraviolet, anything of this part of the spectrum. However, we need to watch out with new developments. 
One thing that's happening in China right now is the development of UV-pumped uh, laser LED light sources. So we need to be aware of how things develop and make sure we don't end up causing troubles. We're also now using even more potent UVC, integrating this with lighting equipment for sanitization of spaces. Obviously, this has to be done with extreme care because UVC causes direct physical harm to humans. When we start discussing well-being, we mustn't forget psychological impacts of lighting. As you were told in the introduction, I came into the lighting field through stage lighting. Lighting in this area is used specifically to manipulate the audience, to give cues for the time of day and passing of time, and manipulate the audience's feelings about a character or about a scene. Most of these effects are subliminal, but we can do the same thing in architecture, either by design or by accident. We're all aware of how our mood changes uh, depending on whether it's a dark, overcast, sometimes rainy day, compared to a bright, sunny day. So a question has to be, why is it so common for us to go into spaces such as shops or offices and uh, experience the same sort of flat, quite cool and dead lighting that we'd experience on a cloudy day? In fact, why do we even value lighting uniformity as a design goal? When we think about humans, our evolution developed through, us, through outdoor living, initially as hunter-gatherers and then in agrarian societies. And this continued right up to the early 19th century. Given that we have now changed to a predominantly indoor industrial society in this short two-century period, we have to consider that our physical beings have not significantly moved on in our relationship with light. We still visually function as a species intended to live predominantly outdoors, in daylight during the day, and indoors, or at least protected, beside an open fire at night. These conditions of relatively bright, high-color temperature light in the day while we work, and low brightness, warm, incandescent light at night when we relax and sleep, are our natural condition. The mechanism that makes this happen in the body has only relatively recently uh, been discovered and researched. A third receptor in the eye, beyond rods and cones, was discovered, the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. I'm sorry, translators, that's a hard one for you. Um, IPRGC is the shortcut for that. Its connections in the brain to non-image processing areas and consequent effects of melanopic lighting has coincided with the development of the LED. This is an easily manipulated spectral power distribution light source. Plus, it's easy, if not necessary, for it to be controlled electronically. Now, just because something is easy to do doesn't mean to say that it should always be done. We've leapt into the idea that changing the color appearance and intensity of light over the course of the day will always be beneficial. 
My thinking on this is that many, if not most, architectural applications, we may only be creating a theatrical effect and apparent impacts become merely psychological. Frankly, there's not yet been sufficient research, particularly in real live workplaces, to see what the effect of varying color temperature and intensity are and how applicable building them into our design process is. Currently, I'm aware of one piece of research that is currently ongoing, which is based on the work of the Manchester Group, who are leading in research on melanopic lighting. Um, this is working with a particular fitting that is designed specifically to impact this area of the spectrum and the intensities that are effective in the workplace. I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of this uh, research at the end of the year. I am bound to say that our current metrics for light and our general design targets and methods are of absolutely no use in measuring or optimizing the melanopic effects of light. Our core method of quantifying light, the lumen, remains bound to the V-lambda curve. This is based on lab experiments on a relatively few students in 1931, again in 1951, and sort of again in 2018. Uh, but that was done with totally artificial light, not real light at all, so to speak. It relates only to the photopic visual response to daylight, like light levels, so bright light levels. Under most artificial lighting, our eyes are not responding to this curve. Rather, the mesopic curve, which was, designed, which was um, defined in 1951, the IPRGC response, the melanopic response, is way far to the blue of this curve. We also continue design to standards based on task area illuminance levels. Now, these are of questionable relevance in lighting design, as the eye does not see the light delivered, only the light reflected from the surfaces and tasks. And given the massive increases in recommendations for task lighting over the past 70 years, it's a reasonable assumption that our visual system has not evolved significantly to our indoor artificially lit environment over this period. Now the majority of our tasks, particularly in an office environment, but also quite a lot industrially, are screen, self-illuminating screen-based tasks. The continued design focus on task illuminance seems to be somewhat questionable. And task illuminance is pretty much irrelevant to the IPRGC and trying to work with melanopic effects on the human body. For this, light needs to be measured at or as close as possible to the retina, up here, not down here. Um, and also it needs to really consider the spectral response that affects the IPRGC, not our visual fields. So far, what we've been discussing is normal, average, healthy responses to light. Unfortunately, none of us are average. Uh, and if normal is the typical 20 to 30-year-old student who uh, are the predominant subjects of research in, in lighting experiments in universities, I think very few of us fall into that category. Nope, not very many. So uh, we think we know about some of the things that happens to us. We seem to believe that as we age, 
we have reduced sensitivity in the eye. Now, as the owner of a pair of conventionally aging eyes, I'm told I need significantly more light to perform tasks. Well, while I accept I may not be average, or even normal, uh, I don't find I need more light. What I do need is higher contrast in the tasks to make life easy. And the other thing is I'm less bothered about that than the loss of visual acuity. So very focal glasses notwithstanding, that bothers me more than the amount of light to perform a task. Now, I maintain my previous statement that uh, we haven't evolved, but there have been changes in humans over this time period. These are changes in our body form and body shape. It's changes in diet, medical interventions, exercise regimes, regimes lifestyles in general uh, have changed. And these account for changes, including average heights, but also for the number of people who now seem to need to wear glasses. Um, and also people who in previous generations would have been considered functionally blind can now function. Now, this ever-increasing population also needs to be considered in our design thinking. We need to be aware of and understand the needs of this population. They differ, the needs differ depending on the particular visual problems they have. Um, an example was I had a client with retinitis pigmentosa, often called tunnel vision. Um, it's a degenerative condition which results that in any light sources coming into the field of view cause total disabling glare. Understanding this was essential to developing the project for him. As it happened, a very theatrical dynamic landscape lighting scheme. This is a very major learning experience for me and really has informed my design thinking and how I approach clients and how I approach the particular potential users of the spaces I design. Um, we also need to think about neurodivergent and neurodegenerative and hypersensitivity conditions. These neurological differences uh, affect sensory processing and mental well-being. We can recognize some clear diagnoses in this field where lighting has absolutely known impacts. Uh, for example, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism, migraine, epilepsy, Parkinson's, dementia, and many others. There are also a large, uh, an increasing number of people who have hypersensitivity to lighting without a specific diagnosis. So we need to be mindful of people with these challenges and consider their needs in our design work. Now, British Standards in the UK published uh, this document, uh, the Design for the Mind, Neurodiversity in the Built Environment, which has a useful section on lighting. It's freely downloadable, so I would very much suggest you get it and read it uh, and find somebody to translate it if you need to. Um, it does give us some guidance with these issues. So another thing, another aspect that we need to be wary of is the increasing problems with flicker. We used to be comfortable that we could not see flicker above about 400 hertz, and we had all this high-frequency balance and everything else in the fluorescent period that seemed to make life better. But the older light sources had a persistence of light which is not present in LEDs. Um, what we find 
is that there are new things happening, like the phantom array effect. When your eye scans across a light source or a lit environment, you suddenly get these you know, flashes of light across your field of view. Um, the other thing that, that adds this problem is the use of switch mode power supplies. So instead of having a, a smooth a control of the LED, it's switched on and off very rapidly. Now, research has shown that these effects can be noticed by average humans at up to 10 kilohertz. Now, we have to be very careful that we don't introduce these things or aware, if we do introduce these things, of the impacts, because uh, it can cause discomfort or even disablement. So, in conclusion, as lighting designers, we need to be keenly aware of all the impacts light has on users of the spaces and places we design. We need to keep up with both the research and technological developments to make sure that we're at least doing no harm. However, we can also use our almost magical powers of illusion to create engaging, uplifting, and spiritual spaces of light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Virtual Lighting Design Community Podcast. We hope you enjoyed Kevin Shaw's keynote presentation on health and well-being. Remember to visit our online community at members.vld.community for more information on Kevin and other industry events. As always, we value your feedback, so please leave a review and let us know what you think. Stay connected with us for more captivating discussions and valuable insights into the lighting design industry. We will see you next time.